Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and take the next section, the number two of 12 sections of this history that Luke gave us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I read to you verses 5 through 13. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and the parts of Libya around Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Amen. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. Amen and amen. amen. This is the historical record of what took place in the day of Pentecost and how it was received initially by those that heard these Men and women speak with the gift of tongues. Okay, verse 4, which was from the first section, began with the words, The Holy Ghost filled them all, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we have the word tongues here. And the word tongue in the Bible can describe the muscle that hangs in your mouth, but it also describes the language spoken by a group of people. And so it's just a synonym for languages, which we can tell by looking at this passage and just seeing how it uses tongues and it uses the word language. Like in verse 6, the last word of the verse is language, and yet it's talking about tongues. And they heard every man in his own tongue, singular. They were speaking in tongues, plural, because they were speaking in all different kinds of languages. A tongue, the Oxford English Dictionary says, it's the speech or language of a people or race. Other tongues does not mean gibberish. Charismatics, when they speak in tongues, for the vast majority of the time, it's just gibberish. It's just babbling. And it's ridiculous. And it it looks and appears barbarian because it is barbarian. People with intelligence, with the ability to communicate, convey knowledge. And there's no knowledge conveyed by gibberish or babbling of the modern charismatic movement. The modern charismatic movement began in 1901 on New Year's Day. That It's only 117 years old. Agnes Osmond, you can look her up in Wikipedia and read all about how it started with one woman named Agnes Osmond on New Year's Day, 1901, how it spread to the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles and blew up from there. And it is not of the Lord. They don't follow the Lord's rules for it. Right. They don't follow true doctrine. 
The charismatic movement doesn't even care about Bible doctrine. All they care about is speaking in tongues. As we're going to see shortly, and as you've been taught before, speaking in tongues was the least gift given to the church. There were all, all the other gifts are ranked above it, but they don't seek those other gifts like they seek speaking in tongues. But the Bible uses the word the way that we should understand it. It's a language, and it's called a language here. God confounded the languages or tongues of men at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. The world does have a large number of different languages. And you know, you come to a border, and at that border they speak one language on one side, another language on the other side, and they can't communicate to each other unless they've learned the other party's language or the other party's tongue. The gift of tongues was the ability to speak in a language that you had never learned and to speak in it so fluently that when someone that had learned it or knew it fluently heard you speak, they knew that it was a miracle. It was a miracle to unbelievers. It was not a miracle for believers. We're going to notice that here if we have the time. It was to get the attention of unbelievers that they should pay attention to the person speaking because he's doing a miracle right now by speaking in your language and you know that you know it better than he does because he wasn't raised in your language nor has he really ever been around people that spoke it. But he's speaking to you and he's declaring profound truth about the wonderful works of God in your tongue, in your language. And so it got the attention of men Look at, did it get their attention? They were all amazed. They were all marveling. What does this mean? What does this mean? They're asking a question. Do you apostles have something to say to us? Yes. Amen. We do have something that we'd like to say to you. And so Peter preaches a sermon here in Acts chapter 2 because it was prepared and set up by the gift of tongues. Now this is 9 o'clock in the morning as we're about... Uh, we'll learn next Sunday. Let's just go ahead and get that over with. It's verse 15. Peter answers and says, These are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. The days were ordered in this time by the parts of the twelve hours of a day. Jesus said the day has twelve hours, the night has twelve hours. The third hour is nine o'clock. Now, the ninth hour is going to be 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and it's going to be a different kind of a miracle to get their attention we're going to have a man leaping for joy and running around the man that was born lame later in the afternoon. But right now we're here at 9 o'clock in the morning with this gift of tongues. Foreign tongues are not understood by local residents. A foreign tongue means it's foreign. It's from another place, and I don't understand it. Each nation has its own special tongue or language, and this is true throughout the Bible and through our own experience. Heaven has those of every tongue or language there due to every nation being represented. The Bible tells us that the multitude of people that do make it to heaven are there out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. And there's just, that's just different ways of describing them, and one is to describe them by their language groups. Words vary in different languages. In Revelation 9-11, the angel of the bottomless pit is given a name in Hebrew. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. His name in Greek is Apollyon. Abaddon, Apollyon. Both mean the same thing. Destroyer. The angel of the bottomless pit. 
If we look at verse 6, the last three words are his own language. If we look at verse 8, the words there are our own tongue. His own language, our own tongue. So there's tongue and language being equated. And the reason we want to emphasize this point, because we're learning right now something from the Bible, that the modern charismatic movement is wrong about the thing that is most important to them. Their whole denominational system of the Pentecostals and the Charismatics, the Benny Hins of the world and the others, the most important thing to them is speaking in tongues, and they're in error on that. They're in gross error on that because it's a real language. It's not to be used in an assembly of believers unless there's an interpreter there, and then only a few should speak, and only one at a time, and women shouldn't do it. And they break all those rules when they get together. It's to convince unbelievers that you should listen to the person speaking so that they can convert you to the truth of the gospel. And so was healing. And so were the other signs and wonders that God gave the apostles to do because these apostles were from the backwoods redneck area of Galilee. Notice, they're all Galileans. They weren't Judeans. They weren't from Judea. They weren't from Jerusalem. They were not city dwellers. They were not educated. They were the backwoods fishermen from Galilee, which was about 70 or 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And these uneducated, how do we know they're uneducated? Okay, we just go to the next chapter, and it's Acts chapter 4, the two chapters, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. And these are two of their best. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. I'm not picking on the apostles by saying they were uneducated. They were fishermen. They may have had a third grade education. They may have had a sixth grade education. They may not have had much of an education at all, except in how to use their ships and nets to make a living, which counts more than just having a degree on the wall. But anyway, they, they, they knew how to make a living. And especially when the Lord was around and told them where to cast their net, they, they had quite a living. But They were unlearned and ignorant men, and it only took a little bit of conversation with them to realize that. They had an accent from the dialect of the Galileans, the accent from the Galileans, and they were rough. They were fishermen. And so when they began speaking in other languages, it was marvelous. And that's why the statement is made in verse 7, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? We know they can't even do Hebrew justice, let alone these other languages they're speaking in. And so it was impressive. And that's why God gave these miracles for 40 years. These miracles were needed. How many books of the New Testament are in existence right now at this point? None. There's no New Testament. So what does a church do? How does anybody know about Jesus Christ without the New Testament? They have apostles that are directly inspired by God from heaven, and those men got the attention of their audiences by signs and wonders. Jesus told them this would be done for them in Mark 16. They would raise the dead, they would heal the sick, they would speak in other tongues, they would take up serpents. They could take up poisonous serpents and not die. That example is in Acts chapter 28. They could drink poison and it wouldn't kill them. They had power in such ways to get the attention of their hearers. And so here we're starting out this great day of worship 
on the day of Pentecost, and immediately the Lord gives these fishermen. Do you know who would listen to these fishermen in Jerusalem? No one. No one is going to listen to these rough, redneck fishermen from Galilee. No one. Especially in the educated metropolis of Jerusalem, where their knowledge was held by the scribes and the lawyers. Think about these terms. Lawyers. Do, do they know the book? Do they know the law book? And the law book was the Old Testament. Right. And the scribes that transcribed it and copied it and meticulously copied it. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. All of those professions were in Jerusalem. And here come fishermen from Galilee. When they opened their mouth, thy speech bereath thee. Who's going to say that to Peter? A little maid. A little maid. How, is she an English teacher? No. A little maid is going to hear Peter talking around the fire while Jesus is on trial, and she's going to say, Your speech bereath thee. Your speech tells me and tells us that uh, where you're from. And, you know, this is Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. You're one of his. It, just, it was just there. But now it's not there. The Holy Spirit has come on these fishermen and they are declaring the wonderful works of God. They weren't making a noise. They weren't just gibbering. It just wasn't babbling. They were declaring the wonderful works of God. Amen. They did not hear the babbling of epileptic idiots. They heard God's wonderful works plainly. The Bible knows nothing of the ecstatic speech or gibberish or stuttering that's promoted today. The Bible does not teach that. That's not a gift. That's a sign of insanity. You know, it's, a, it's called a sign gift. It's called a sign and a wonder. Insanity is not a sign and a wonder. It's, it's stupidity. It's a demented state. It's not one to get your attention that I want to listen to this person. It's the opposite. It's a barbarian. The Apostle Paul said, don't do this in your assemblies because if visitors come in, they'll think you're all nuts because you're yapping away in Russian and nobody there knows Russian. The visitor doesn't know Russian. Do you know what Russian sounds like if you're an English person? Babbling. A barbarian. And so the apostle warns about this. But for 40 years it existed. Then it was, it was taken away. The, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, the gift of tongues would be taken away because it was no longer needed. Because these apostles that had signs and wonders wrote down the truth of the New Testament gospel in their epistles. And so there were 27 books to tell us their testimony about Jesus Christ. And so once the books were there, we didn't need these sign gifts. Right. Other tongues mean other languages, not gibberish. For this is the true sense of the word tongue. The gift of tongues is grossly misunderstood today and perverted by charismatic heretics. Unknown, when it's called an unknown tongue in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 14, means it's a foreign language not known to the resident hearers. When it's unknown, it's not unknown to everyone. It's unknown to that locality. So when it's spoken there by people that have never learned it, it's a miracle. That's what it means when it's unknown. Tongues of angels. In 1 Corinthians 13, angels don't speak in a different language. The Bible doesn't tell us that anywhere. You think an angel is so dumb they had to go to language school? Angels can speak English. Why wouldn't they be able to speak English? Do you think they're not intelligent enough? They didn't have Dr. Seuss? Why, why would you even think of that? Well, they think of it because of 1 Corinthians 13, 1, where it talks about 
the tongues of men and of angels. Paul is using a hyperbolic, hyperbole, which means a chosen form of exaggeration to make a powerful point. That if, 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 I had this imagined gift of tongues that I could speak in some angelic language that's even higher than any language on earth. If I didn't have charity, I'm nothing but sounding brass. I sound like a bunch of clanging noise in the kitchen. That's what his point is. It's hyperbole. It has no value because there's no language of angels. You'll have enough difficulty learning English properly or maybe learning some other language that won't help you very much. You will not be able to learn the language of angels. It's, it's hyperbole to make a point, and so we just pass on from that. Amen. Tongues are a sign of God's power, but gibberish only shows madness. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, because we want to see some of the verses over there about this gift of tongues. We're going to pass on quickly, but let's look at some of the things that the Bible tells us about tongues, because it's introduced to us right here. In Mark 16, Jesus said it's going to come. In Acts 2, it came. In 1 Corinthians 14, the rules that detail its use are given to us. Did it get their attention? I want to say, this, say it again. Did it get their attention? Amen. What, did it quickly spread in the city of Jerusalem so that a huge crowd gathered together and wondered what in the world is going on in our city? Right. We've got some rednecks down here that are declaring and preaching to us the wonderful works of God like we've never really heard it before. What is going on in our city? So exactly why they were given was fulfilled on this perfect day. And this was a perfect day. And there's going to be a healing in six hours that is wonderful. Silver and gold have I none, sir. But what I have give I thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rise up, take up your bed and walk. Peter and John at the gate beautiful of the temple. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 23 says... What will happen if visitors come in? If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned in that language, or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? They're going to say that you're insane. And that's what charismatic services sound like. Everybody's insane. They're all going off at once. It's just a bunch of babbling and gibberish. Lord, we thank you for the truth that when we first encounter tongues, it is very clear, carefully defined as other languages. And we're given a list of some of those languages and how it was declaring meaningful truth to them about the wonderful works of God. They weren't barking in the spirit. They weren't laughing in the spirit. They were not slaying anyone in the spirit because all of those are made up charismatic gimmicks that are heresy. And they're not by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're by the power of another spirit. Because Paul said that he feared for the Corinthians, and it was the most charismatic church in the New Testament, he feared for the Corinthians that they would be vulnerable to another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. Tongues were the least gift in the church. We've shown you that from 1 Corinthians 12, 28, but they're exalted today as the greatest. We are to covet earnestly the best gifts. That means any other gift than speaking in tongues. Teaching was far more important than tongues in Paul's thinking and church rules. And I'm not gonna, we're not going to preach through 1 Corinthians 14 because I'm trying to preach through Acts chapter 2. But 1 Corinthians 14 has all these rules about how tongues were to be used, how they would be perceived, what they were, how, the limit that they were, was to be put on them in an assembly, how everything was to be done decently and in order. 
Is it decent and in order when, when a church is down on their hands and knees, crawling around and barking and laughing in the Spirit? They're in the Spirit, all right, but it is not the Spirit of the living and true God, and it's not the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. When women are being slain in the Spirit and falling down in their dresses, and other women are having to run around with blankets to throw over them because they just exposed themselves in some revival service. They expose the fact that they may be devil-possessed because that is the behavior that was true of the Gadarene before he met Jesus. He was running around in cemeteries and acting like a nutcase and couldn't be bound. Lord, help us and thank you. I want you to appreciate the gift of tongues. You know, we as Baptists resent the gift of tongues because of its abuse, but let's put it in its proper place for 40 years or 30 or 20, there during the time of Reformation, it was a powerful demonstration, and it worked right here in Acts chapter 2 the way it's supposed to work. Right. Tongues were assigned to unbelievers, not a thrill for believers. Let's look at this, 1 Corinthians 14, 21. And you'll, you'll appreciate this passage if you love the Word of God, because this is Paul taking an Old Testament prophecy of the gift of tongues, now, there were two ways that God dealt with Israel about having to hear other languages. One way was he took them captive, so they had to listen to Chaldean in the city of Babylon. And I'm just throwing this out there for those of you that like to study your Bible. When you go back and look at some of these passages about men, uh, men of other tongues, right. sometimes it's the Babylonians and sometimes it's the apostles. But here we go. 1 Corinthians 14, this is quoted from Isaiah chapter 28. In the law, 1 Corinthians 14, 21, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, Paul's argument from the text, tongues are for a sign. A sign. A sign. God is with these fishermen. A sign. God is with these fishermen. When Jesus healed the man born blind, what was his reasoning with the Pharisees? Now, wait a minute. Why do you want to call this man a sinner? From the foundation of the world, a, a man that was born blind has never been given his sight back. If I've been given my sight back, then God must be with this man. Do you, do you remember the reasoning? Oh, yeah. That reasoning is what goes through everyone's mind when they see a divine miracle. The stuff that's on television, or the stuff that happens at our former Bilo Center, what's it called now, Bon Secor Place? I'm serious, I can't remember what it's called now. They keep changing names on it because they don't like paying for it. Bon Secure Wellness Center, okay? When Benny Hinn comes there, you know, that's not a sign. It's, well, it's a sign of other things that are going on. <laughs> but it's not a sign that the Lord is with him. It's just a mess going on in our nation today. And it started on New Year's Day, 1901. And it's all documented online because they're not ashamed of it. They're proud of it. You ought to read about it. You ought to read about the Azusa Street Mission. You ought to read about the Toronto Revival that went on for many, many years. And the barking and laughing and stuff that went on there that's nothing like this. 
This was a demonstrated miracle that unbelievers, not other believers, were saying, great, you got the gift of tongues. I got it too. Aren't we cool? No. It was for unbelievers to say, what's going on in our city? We've got Galileans speaking in languages, and I'm from Parthia. And they're speaking in Parthian. And they're declaring the wonderful works of God. I know the wonderful works of God because I'm a Jew. I was born in Parthia. That language is not known by these Galileans, and they're using my language that I was born in to declare the wonderful works of God that I know about from the Old Testament scriptures. That's how the apostles would start a sermon. Do you remember how Stephen would start a sermon in Acts chapter 7? How Paul would start a sermon in Acts chapter 13? He would preach the wonderful works of God in the history of the Old Testament Israel. And then he would work his way up to the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you see how it's working? They're there. The multitude has come together. Tongues were limited to three speakers in an assembly. You couldn't have more than three, and they had to speak one at a time. It's verse 27 in 1 Corinthians 14. Tongues were limited to an assembly where there was a gifted interpreter to get value from them. Paul did not want 500 Corinthians getting together for a church service and someone standing up and going off for 10 minutes in Russian unless there was a Russian interpreter there that could give them something in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin that would make sense. That doesn't take place in the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement. And when they say that it's taking place, have it checked out by a linguistic expert. Right. Tongues were never used by women in an assembly with Paul. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. These rules from the Holy Ghost were for all the churches without any exceptions. Verse 33. Look at verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. There, there it is. There's the rule. All churches, decently and in order, peaceful, intelligent, three at a time. Got to have an interpreter. Only three in total. I've been three in a service, one speaking at a time, and there's got to be an interpreter. That was the New Testament gift of tongues. So let's go back to Acts 2. I we're Baptists. We don't like the gift of tongues, and we should like it. We always have to fight against it because of the abuse of it by the charismatics. But let's not let them destroy the beauty of what takes place right here Amen. as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Amen. All of a sudden, these fishermen that couldn't even speak Hebrew well enough to pass in Jerusalem, because as soon as they opened their mouths, they knew they were from Galilee. I've said that. Now they're declaring in other languages something very intelligent, uplifting, and glorifying to God. If... If from a person that, a, that is doing something miraculous is exalting and glorifying God, it's from God. No man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, back in that same epistle about the gifts of the New Testament. Jerusalem at this time, I have read to you verses 4 and 5 down through verse 13. Jerusalem at this time because of the Passover and 50 days later the Pentecostal feast had Jews from every nation under heaven visiting there. These were devout men inasmuch as they had traveled great distances for this scriptural feast. They were committed to the Jews' religion as God had revealed it to them. These men were amazed to hear Galilean Jews speak clearly in their own native languages. This is a stupendous event. Did anything like this happen at the League of Nations? 
you know what they have to have at the League of Nations? An interpreter for every single one of them. Do you want to? Do you want to have a, a? If you like foreign languages and you want to, you want to make some bucks from it, then be a translator at the United Nations. Oh yeah, that's a good-paying job. It's a well-paying job. See, I'm a Galilean backwoods redneck former bond trader. Lord, I thank you for your word. Amen. Right here is our answer. There's at least 15 different languages represented here by Luke's specific listing. Let's just start there very quickly. Nine, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia. Those four in the same area of the world of Iraq and Iran. Those four particular areas. And in Judea, you know that's the area surrounding uh, Jerusalem. And Cappadocia is a port, uh, a a Mediterranean seaside area. Pontius, Asia, that's Asia Minor. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. It moves and shifts over to Egypt and Libya around Cyrene, and then it jumps across the Mediterranean to Rome and the Italy of the boot of Italy, Rome, Jews and proselytes. Then there's Cretes from the island of Crete and Arabians from Arabia. There's all these different nations. Now, why are the first four mentioned over there in Iraq and Iran? And since Iraq and Iran are popular in, in today because of Middle East conflict over the last 20 years, especially, they used to be called Persia. It's because that's where many Jews were taken captive. There were a lot of Jews in that area because Nebuchadnezzar in 500 BC, 550, 600 BC, took the Jews captive to Babylon. And when they were offered the opportunity to come back under Cyrus the Persian, only 45,000 of them came back. There were still a lot there. When Peter ends his life and tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, he didn't end his life that way when Peter's life ended. I didn't mean that Peter ended his life. I want you to think about language. I just used the wrong choice of words. A backwoods, redneck Galilean. Nebuchadnezzar took them captive, and when Cyrus offered them to come back, only 45,000 came back, and many stayed there, so that Peter, when he closed out 1 Peter chapter 5, he said that he was in the city of Babylon. Because there were a lot of Jews there. And so we have the first ones that are listed are there in what was formerly called Persia and what is now known as, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Iran, and so forth. Then it shifts over to northern Africa, where some of them went, because when Nebuchadnezzar came down to Jerusalem, those that thought they could cheat and get away from God's judgment fled to Egypt. And so there were Jews in Egypt. And remember that the ten tribes of Israel had been dispersed abroad by God's judgment under the Assyrians, even before Nebuchadnezzar had done it to those of Jew of, of Judea. And so they're spread all abroad, and these Jews are devout men that would make the annual trek to get back to Israel and back to Jerusalem for the Passover and for Pentecost. Or they had moved here and were living there, and they were raised in those places, but they loved their home country, they loved their home capital, they loved temple worship, and so they had moved here because it says they were dwelling there in the city of Jerusalem. But they were raised in these different languages from all over. And here's the Galileans going off in their languages. The Galileans had a corrupt dialect, so even men of Judah perceived the certain miracle. And it's it's the example I've mentioned to you of the maid, and I showed you that they were considered uneducated and unlearned if you just heard them speak for a little while. Now, what are they preaching? Verse 5 tells us that there were a bunch of devout men there in Jerusalem because of the feast out of every nation under heaven. 
Verse 6, when this speaking in tongues by the Holy Spirit's gift was spread in the city, they came together. This multitude came together because their language was being spoken. They thought that it would only belong back there in Parthia. And they were confounded because they were hearing their own language. They were amazed. They marveled. I'm in verse 7. They're saying to one another, look, these are all Galileans that are speaking. What in the world is going on? I love the Lord. This is a tremendous miracle. This is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. We have one place, one group of people, one doctrine being presented to all these different languages, undoing the judgment of the Tower of Babel by these men of one language, the Galilean dialect of Hebrew or Aramaic, speaking in all these foreign dialects and languages and undoing it so they could all hear the glorious news of Jesus Christ by the gift that God gave them because this was going to go worldwide so that it could come to you and to me. Do you know that someone had to learn English at some point to communicate the truth to us? Because we are not reading a Hebrew Bible, nor an Aramaic Bible, nor a Greek Bible. We're reading an English Bible. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the joyful sound in English. Thank you, Lord. What were they speaking? It tells us, The wonderful works of God in verse 11. We do hear them speak in our tongues the plural languages of those different groups that were just listed. The wonderful works of God. The wonderful works of God. I've already mentioned. If we flipped over to Acts chapter 7 and Stephen has this long chapter of 60 verses where he is preaching and he starts off. I just want to show you the wonderful works of God. Verse 2 As he opens his sermon, men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. That's when he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And he starts off with the wonderful works of God. He chose and blessed Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Moses, then David, and so forth. And you know what all the Jews are doing while Stephen's preaching so far? They're shouting amen. They're loving what they're hearing because he's declaring the wonderful works of God. And he's building them up in how God has dealt with our nation, but now God has sent his Messiah. And we should accept him, love him, and worship him because he's the promised Messiah and the Son of God. And if we come over to Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul's going to do the same thing. Paul goes into a synagogue, not because he believes in Sabbath day worship, but because he's going in there to evangelize the people that did believe in Sabbath day worship at that point in time. And listen to his sermon get started. Verse 16, Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, now this is an Antioch of Pisidia. This city is Antioch of Pisidia across the Mediterranean Sea in what would today be southern Turkey, southern and westernmost Turkey. Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, who are those people? Those are Gentile proselytes. Those are Gentiles that had converted to become Jews because God had convinced them the monotheistic religion of worshiping Jehovah that had the 39 books of the Old Testament was true religion. Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. So Paul cuts off Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph and starts out with them down there in Egypt. 
It's the wonderful works of God. Back to Acts chapter 2. Oh, I've already told you, brethren. I've, I've already mentioned it, this fact in Malachi chapter 3, as the Old Testament ends, the apostle, the, the, the prophet Malachi warned us and encouraged the people of Israel that if they would speak to each other about the fear of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord speak to each other, he would write their names in a book of remembrance. We want to talk about the wonderful works of God. Right. Notice the wisdom to be agreeable first and then bring the truth to bear. They're very agreeable. They're excited about the wonderful works of God toward their nation, like Stephen and, and Paul gave them. Then Peter's going to just progress. You know when his sermon really starts? The preaching really starts in verse 22. Do you want to hear the difference? Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Amen. Nothing like that has been said yet to that point. Because they're all excited and they're gathered together. They're hearing things that they agree with and it's wisdom for us. It's not the main point of this passage, but it's wisdom. Can you start with something we agree on? You know what I call it? I call it small pill evangelism. Why do you have to walk up to someone and hit them with a two-by-four across the brow of their nose? Why not find something that you agree on, like they did? These were the boldest men in the history of the world when it came to evangelism, and they would find things to agree on. Then Peter would say, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. I thought he had just been speaking. He had been. He opened up Joel chapter 2 to them and explained that Joel chapter 2 was being fulfilled in their midst. The wonderful works of God. Turn back to the book of Psalms. There's things for us to talk about, brethren. We don't need to talk about the New England Patriots or the Clemson Tigers. There's things we can talk about. We don't need to talk about your health. You can talk to yourself about your health. We want to talk about the Lord. The Lord's the one in charge of health. Why would you talk about anything else? You want to tell us about your doctor's visit? They can't help you. Those that go to the doctor the most have the most problems. And that's because they go to the doctor the most. Get the, th get the things in proper order. Psalm 26. Psalm 26, look at verse 7. That I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. That I may tell of all thy wondrous works. That I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving. To whom have you published what in the last 24 hours? Have you published something to someone? Have you published the wonderful works of God? He's wonderful. Amen. Acts 2 is wonderful. My brother had to call me down yesterday on the phone. He called me. He called me, so it's his fault. But he called me down on the phone. Calm down, Jonathan. Calm down. Slow down. Because I was full of matter. Amen. I was like a wine bottle ready to blow up. Uh, in the Old Testament use of that from a skin bag that could blow up with the fermentation process. Psalm 26, look at Psalm 40. This is throughout the Psalms of David. That's why we love the Psalms, and you should love the Psalms. Read the Psalms, get excited about the Psalms. Do you know your favorite Psalms? We just heard from a woman 
that has a psalm that can, is now probably in one of her top 10. Top 10? Does it make the top 10 cut? Top 10. Psalm 37. Psalm 34. Psalm 34. We had Psalm 37 presented to our church recently. We had Psalm 39 presented today. Thank you, Jonah, for giving us verses 4 through 7 of Psalm 39. Lord, me make me to know mine end. Lord, make us to know our end, because our end is coming. Everything in the world wants us not to think about dying. The Lord wants us to think about dying because it makes us better. It's better to go to the house of mourning like a, like a funeral or a cemetery than it is to go to the house of feasting or partying because that, that does not make us better. To soberly re reflect on life, what is my life matter? What am I accomplishing? What is my legacy? What effect am I having on the world? What glory am I bringing to God? What real profit am I bringing to my children? What real profit am I bringing to anyone else? Are the questions that we should ask and answer about the brevity of life. As we heard from Psalm 39. These are the things we should talk about. Psalm 40 and verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Has God done that many things for you? Amen. He's done that many things for me. There's too, there are too many to number. They cannot be reckoned. Jeff, look at the word reckoned there and numbered in one verse. That's something we talked about at break time. Don't just ignore that, jury. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done and thy thoughts which are to usward. Look at Psalm 77 and verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Every Old Testament story is not just to entertain children. It's to entertain us. It's to excite us. It's to exhort us. It's to remind us. It's to warn us. Every Old Testament event. They're all precious. Recently, we've had occasion to go into Genesis chapter 16, an obscure chapter, and read about Hagar. And we learned about her terrible plight and that she renamed the God of Israel. She couldn't believe that Abraham's God had found her alone and lost, an Ishmaelite, I mean, the mother of Ishmael, in the wilderness. She was an Egyptian. She was fired. She was pregnant. She was betrayed. She was all messed up. But the Lord found her. That's a great story. Thou God seest me. She changed his name. Thou God seest me. She named him that. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Psalm 78 and verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. Wonderful. There are Old Testament wonderful works and there are New Testament wonderful works, but the New Testament wonderful works are not presented in the day of Pentecost until verse 22, when Peter takes up. What excites your soul? What do you love to discuss with others? Most are obsessed with selfish nothingness. It's, it's just disgusting, especially in the day of social media. The trivial junk that people share with each other, just having to do this, having to post to Facebook. Nobody cares about your Facebook. Why don't you put the wonderful works of God out there every day? Who's going to start tomorrow and have a Facebook page with, if in your name so that anyone that knows you comes to it, they find the wonderful work 
of God of October 9th. 2017 is this event. And then Tuesday, October 10th, is this event. And you're praising the Lord and publishing something important. No one else is publishing out there. I've mentioned the New York Times. I've mentioned ESPN. I've mentioned the Weather Channel. They're not going to give you one single profitable thing. Right. We need to be sharing that with each other. And that's what, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, for the evangelization of these devout men that were in the city of Jerusalem, that's what they were speaking in tongues, these fishermen. This great event got the attention of that multitude. They were confounded and amazed. It was an obvious and an unquestionable demonstration of the power of God. And they heard wonderful preaching about the wonderful works of God. And yet they were in doubt because they didn't know for sure what was happening. Peter will give them the fullest explanation in the next section of this chapter. Because he's going to explain, Joel 2 prophesied of this very event that was going to come to pass. And this very event was going to come to pass before a big, terrible event, the, the notable day of the Lord, when the whole nation is going to be destroyed. Because that's what Malachi prophesied, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and, and Joel had prophesied of it. God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit on all kinds of flesh, not just the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, or the scribes. He's going to pour it out on fishermen from Galilee. He's going to pour it out on handmaidens. He's going to pour it out on women. They're going to prophesy. They're going to speak in tongues at this particular point in time to demonstrate that God is warning this nation with one final warning before the great notable day of the Lord come, and that was the destruction of Jerusalem. And that is verse 20 here in this chapter. And verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, 3,000 called on the name of the Lord and were baptized right here in this context. And after, when they were baptized, it tells us that Peter spent many other words teaching them something in verse 40. Save yourselves! Save yourselves. Right. Save yourselves. From what? From this untoward generation. From this generation that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to be destroyed. Just like Jesus had taught in Matthew chapter 24. Pray that it not be the Sabbath day where you're limited in how much you can travel. Pray that you're not nursing a baby. Don't look back and worry about the stuff in your house. Get out of the city of Jerusalem because it's going to be leveled. And so here, we're going to get that full explanation in the next section from verse 14 down through verse 21. But right now, we have some scorners, and we find them in verses 12 and 13. They were all amazed. This multitude that came together of devout men, out of these at least 15 different language groups that are mentioned from different nations, they were all in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? What is going on in our city? What is God doing with these Galileans? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Hmm. First of all, what is new wine? It's never been grape juice in the history of the world to any single person, right. except somebody who wants to lie to themselves. What is new wine? Listen. Current vintage. Current vintage. So when you look on the bottle, it says 2016, 2017, as soon as 2017 is available. What's, what's old wine? 2012, you're going to pay for it. 2008, you're going to pay more for that. All that That's all new wine is. Can new wine make you drunk? That's what they said. These men are drunk with new wine, so it sure ain't grape juice. It's never been grape juice. 
If you walk into a restaurant and say, I'd like a glass of new wine, you think they're going to bring you grape juice? Look at Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11 just to confirm this about new wine. We don't want to miss anything. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11. I'll read it to you. Where whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. Does grape juice take away the heart of anyone? Does whoredom take away the heart? Does wine take away the heart? And new wine. Why is the distinction made between wine and new wine? New wine's the current vintage. It's the stuff that hasn't, is not as good. It hasn't mellowed as much. It's cheap. No one's had to store it in careful conditions for two years or five years or ten years or twenty years. And so we're back in Acts chapter 2. That was Hosea 4.11 that I just gave you, which is a great cross-reference for new wine in Acts chapter 2 and verse 13. Others mocking. They're just making fun of the apostles. They're mocking them. These are scorners. Someone that makes fun of a preacher of the gospel or of an apostle or of the Lord Jesus Christ calling him a Samaritan or saying they're drunk. They're mocking. They're scorners. They're the worst category of person that is ever listed in the book of Proverbs is a scorner, someone who doesn't like to be corrected, someone who doesn't like to be preached to, someone who doesn't like to be told that they're wrong, and they despise not only the message, but they despise the one giving the message. That's a scorner. And so these scorners are mocking them by saying they're drunk. Peter's explanation is, we're not drunk. We're followers of Jesus of Nazareth, and we would never let a drop touch our lips. No, he didn't do that. Because anyone that knew Jesus of Nazareth knew that he drank wine all the time. That's why he was called a wine-bibber. John the Baptist didn't drink wine because John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Jesus was the opposite of John the Baptist and drank wine often and was called a wine-bibber. John the Baptist ate grasshoppers and didn't eat bread. Jesus ate bread and he was called a gluttonous man because he ate bread differently. They wouldn't have called him a gluttonous man if he didn't eat. John the Baptist is out there just popping a grasshopper once in a while. I mean, who can be a glutton on grasshoppers? But that, that was the situation. And so when we look at this verse, Peter gives them a natural explanation. Listen, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Do you think we've got 120 men and women that are already drunk? No. So that's the explanation he gives them. They spoke in new languages that were never before learned, and that's not what a person does when they're drunk. They're mocking them. That's a scorner. That's not thinking about the fact that we've got 15 language groups here by men that were born in those nations that are used to hearing it just right, and they're saying these Galileans are declaring wonderful works of God that they're able to recognize, understand, and agree with. They're Galileans, and they're doing it in that language, and they never learned that language. That is not drunkenness you would think that they could add two and two and two and get six, but instead they accuse them of drunkenness. Thus, we're through verse 13 of Acts chapter 2. What have we learned? Number one, let's just get a couple points. Number one, verse one tells us that God's blessing came on a united church. They were all with one accord in one place. Two, a church can't be anything without the Spirit of God. We need to be praying for more of the Holy Spirit, and we need to be living in a way to bring the Holy Spirit, which is in that first verse. Number one feeds to number two. 
with number one and number two, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be opened up to us from the pages of Scripture, and we're going to love him and serve him like we should. We're not going to get the gift of tongues, no matter how much of the Holy Spirit we get, because the gift of tongues is 1,977 years gone, or something like that. A large number, 1,947 years, as it ended at the latest, at 70 A.D. But that unity that is in verse 1 is something we want in our marriages, something we want in our families, and something we want in our church for God's blessing on us. Then we can see that when the kingdom at that point, represented by one church at this moment, in this place, comes together, and there's a tremendous result and an explosion, not only in quantity, but in quality and in character of those people, a transformation of Peter, a transformation of them. They take in 3,000 strangers and they all get along perfectly well. They hold all things common. They're willing to sell their goods and give to the poor as every man had need. They did not give to anyone based on what they wanted. They only gave to men that had need and we've been through that before, but what changed them? Why did they want to praise God? Why did they want to be in the temple every day? Why did they want to continue in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and of prayers? And why did they eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart from house to house? How did all that happen? By the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can have that. Paul can write later, like Romans 15, which I used earlier with you today, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. That's to be filled with all joy, to be filled with all peace, and to abound in hope by the God of hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost power is no longer for speaking in tongues. It's no longer for healing a man born lame. It is for joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. For the kingdom of God is not righteous, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. If your home, your marriage, this church is not filled with righteousness, peace, and joy, it's because it doesn't have the Holy Ghost. And we want that. So let's remember verse 1 and what else is described here in this chapter. Not the gift of tongues. We've learned the historical event. We're not going to repeat it. We're thankful for it. Lord, thank you for sending the gift of tongues, which eventually resulted in us hearing the gospel by spreading the gospel throughout the world because you undid the Tower of Babel so that we English babbling people could hear the truth and the joyful sound of Jesus Christ. Let us be united with one accord in one place and all of one mind with singleness of heart and let us be filled with joy and peace and hope and eat our meat with gladness and love life and love each other and embrace it Life is wonderful. Jesus came to give us the abundant life, and it's abundant for everyone that's walking in the Spirit. And enjoy the toys that God gives us along with the gift of His Son. He's given us America, the abundance of all things. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Amen.